Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Lost in Science for another week. We are going to bring you a couple of great stories about science. And one lame one. Oh, no, you, no. You, you be the judge of which, of which one that is. Yeah, yeah, you have a listen. My name is Claire and today I am going to be talking a little bit about finches. You know those beautiful, colourful birds that you see in the desert? You know, finches? Finches. Yeah, Yeah. finches. Finches, yeah. Anyway, finches to me are synonymous with amazing scientific discoveries. And in the last week we've had another huge scientific discovery related to finches. And it's all about finches being able to communicate with their eggs while their eggs are embryos. And um, and that actually has an effect on the way their eggs develop and how they come out. So it's really interesting, actually. Very fascinating. Right. New discoveries with finches. That is clearly not the dud story. Yeah, clearly not the dud story. How about you, Chris? Well, is yours the dud story? <laughs> Maybe. I'm going to be talking about some really interesting research that's come out recently that tried to explain what eyelashes are good for. <laughs> oh, yes? <laughs> yes. Um, so that may or may not be the dud story. Um, again, you be the judge of that. Mm. Mm. And also, though, we have, we have Manisha will be bringing us a story on the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is, the, I believe, the effect where the less you know, the more you think you know. So um, something we don't suffer here at Lost in Science. We're, we're pretty confident we know everything. <laughs> we, we clearly don't suffer from Dunning-Kruger. <laughs> well, Dunning-Kruger is something. I mean, everyone's got a friend who thinks they know everything. Yeah. Yeah, so it is a very relevant story, this one. Yes. For everyone. Yeah. Brilliant. On with the show. Well, finches, in my opinion, are pretty fantastic birds. And in Australia, we have over 15 species of finch, including the impressive Gouldian finch, which has the sort of yellow and purple body, which you might know, maybe. Do I think you? I've seen one. Yeah. 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 And they're in, they're in the north of Australia. Right. And there's also the striped zebra finch. Ooh. But more than any other songbird, when I think about finches, I think about huge revelatory scientific discoveries. And like Darwin's finches, for example. The Galapagos right. finches. The Galapagos finches, exactly. Darwin's Galapagos finches. So what did they do again? So these are a group of around 15 finches from the Galapagos Islands that were collected by Darwin on the Beagle's second trip. And they were actually then classified by the taxonomist Gould, as in the guy who's... The, the Gould finch is named the, after. The Gould finch yes. is named after, ah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a coincidence. Um, yeah. But eventually Darwin wrote about the diversity of finches in the Galapagos with the difference sort of um, being the shape of their beaks. So from this observation, Darwin came up with um, a great example of what's called adaptive radiation. That's sort of like one original finch over time um, diversifying to fill different ecological niches. So 
some finches end up with big beaks that can sort of crack nuts and some um, finches end up with these thin beaks to get into small sort of spaces to eat grubs and that sort of thing. And he wrote about this, actually. He said, seeing this gradation and diversity of structure in one small, intimately related group of birds, one might really fancy that from an original paucity of birds in this archipelago, one species has been taken and modified for different ends. And as an aside, this example of adaptive radiation and evolution was not actually published in The Origin of the Species, which a lot of people think it was. And this was possibly due to the fact that Darwin wasn't very good at record keeping. Because when he actually collected all the finches, mm. he didn't write down where what islands they were from. So he then so his bad record keeping then translated to not being able to sort of like sort out exactly where all the finches were in a geographical sort of range and But he did twig eventually, didn't he? Yeah, he twigged eventually, but it wasn't in the origin of the species. Okay. okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay, anyway, fast forward 200 years or almost 200 years. We're back in Australia again with the zebra finches. Mm -hmm. So they're the tiny little finches that live in the desert and they've got sort of these nice little black stripes on them. Now, new research has just been published that shows these little birds have been found to do the most amazing thing. They can communicate with their offspring while they're embryos are still in the eggs so they like can talk sing. to the eggs yeah they can talk to the eggs and the eggs can listen um so they sing to their eggs and this in turn influences the way that the eggs develop and grow and interestingly what they're communicating when they sing is that um that the environment's getting hotter but the egg's not going to know what the environment should be they're no so the eggs hey guys it's going to be hotter than you expect yeah yeah but what they can do is um it's sort it's it's been shown that they can they can prepare their chicks for a warmer world. So do you want me to go through? Yeah, I want to know what they actually how it works. Experimental design. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. So um, Mylene Marriott and Catherine Buchanan are the authors of the study. Um, so they noticed that when the bird was when these birds these finches were alone, they would make these high pitched calls while they were sitting on eggs. Okay, and they recorded both males and females, and they um that were looking after the eggs and found that both sexes would sing in this high-pitched way, but only when the ambient temperature was over 26 degrees. So the eggs, when they're being incubated, they have to be at 37 or so degrees. But Under the bird bum. Yes, under the bird bum. So the eggs wouldn't know that the ambient temperature is getting hotter because they're always at a constant 37 degrees. Yeah, but... The the mama and papa birds would be like, okay, I can feel it's, getting it's, hot out of here. it's over 26 yep. degrees. And they would start making these cheeping noises. So when they tested this experimentally, they incubated over 100 eggs at the normal 37 degree Celsius temperature. And then five days before hatching, they exposed half the eggs to the high-pitched temperature warning calls, the tweet, like the really yeah, high-pitched yeah, 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 yeah. And then the other half the eggs are control. They just did the normal calls. And what they found after all the chicks had hatched was that the ones that had the temperature, um, the temperature warning call, the high-pitched tweets, um, were smaller than the others, than the control. So right. if you're living in a hot environment... You want to be smaller. You want to be smaller because you can lose heat more... Oh. You can lose heat easier or more easily. They then bred the hatchlings in the warmer than average conditions. And they right. did that both to the control group and, and the to the group. Yeah, yeah. Exposed and, group. And to the exposed group. And they found that those that um, were smaller 
so the little ones that had been warned that it was going to be hotter, had larger clutch numbers, so they had more chicks than the controls. So in the second generation, they became more successful in a warmer climate. Okay. Yeah. So what they're sort of suggesting that is that, I guess with finches, they live in arid conditions, so they need to adapt to the environment pretty quickly, mm-hmm. um, whether and they need to breed in conditions, you know, in all sorts of conditions. But, um, but you know, when the going's good, they just need to, you know, breed. Um, but what's pretty remarkable, I think, is that there is at least some species out there that have the capacity to adapt to a warming climate. That, well, the fact that they can. Yeah, send a message though to the next generation is incredible. The eggs can understand. The eggs can actually understand it. Yeah, There's different yeah. chirping and then they can adapt physiologically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, and it shows, like you said, adapting to the changing climate. The birds are already talking about it. It's, um, it's a thing. In general, we look for new law by the following process. First, we guess it. <laughs> then we... Com- so don't laugh. That's really true. Then we compute the consequences of the guess... To see what, if this is right, if this law that we guessed is right, we see what it would imply. And then we compare those computation results to nature. Or we say compare to experiment or experience. Compare it directly with observation to see if it, if it works. If it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. And that simple statement is the key to science. It doesn't make a difference how beautiful your guess is. It doesn't make a difference how smart you are who made the guess or what his name is. If it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. That's all there is to it. Yes, you're listening to, uh, to Lost in Science. And I think we can all agree that science is pretty great, isn't it? Oh, so great. Fantastic. <laughs> it's good. It's good. Yeah, and it was National Science Week last week, so, you yeah. know. That makes it even greater that somehow. That makes <laughs> Um, but no, you've all basically you're recovering from. But uh, I just want to point out that no, it is like we've been celebrating science. But I want to point out that science doesn't necessarily know everything, and sometimes there are unexplained things right in front of your face. Like, that's that. I mean, literally, <laughs> that's, that's even better. Yeah, it is. It is. I, I'm going to give you some examples of things that that science is trying to explain that you know you may not be obvious. Like, um, for instance, sighing is one of the things that is not fully explained you know, by people sigh. <laughs> what, what about why um, yawning's contagious? I, that's that's been um, I think that's been discussed, and people there are theories about that as to do with like you know empathy and mirror neurons and this kind of stuff. Um, but sleeping, sleeping is one where we don't fully understand why we sleep. We spend a third of our lives sleeping, and we don't really know why we do it. Really? Why do Why do you sleep? Oh, because you're tired. Yeah, because I'm tired. <laughs> Pretty much, <laughs> and it's great. Yeah. Yeah. And like, is another, no, there are some theories about it, you know, cleaning out toxins from the brain or, you know, consolidating memories and this kind of stuff. So there are theories, but no one knows for certain why we sleep. But um, yeah, that's, that's another example. But today I'm going to talk about another one, which is um, eyelashes. What are eyelashes for? Aren't they to keep the sweat and um, dirt out of your eyes? This is, this is one of the theories. Um, do they work for that purpose? Yeah, I think they do. Well, I mean, the only thing that gets in your eyes are other eyelashes, that, that, that errant <laughs> eyelashes that end up in your eyes. So most of the time they do their job. Yeah. Well, um, now that's, that is definitely one of the leading theories that they're kind of a, a dust catching. Leading 
theories? Well, you that, that you've heard of. It, you know, that's one of the things that people have said in the past. But there's one of the problems with that is like when you have like a dust filter kind of thing, like say in your um in your clothes dryer, you need to clean it out. Mm. You know, it collects with dust. You need to clean it out. You don't need to clean your eyelashes much. They don't really fill up with dust and stuff. You know, they don't seem to accumulate dust. Don't you have a weekly cry where you clean out your eyelashes? <laughs> Sometimes I get sad and my eyelashes get full of dust. Yeah, I know. No, see, that's one of the things. Um, the other theories have been that it's for, say, detecting collisions. Like, you know, because if you, if you have your eyelashes and you'll blink, it's been pointed out that it had to be a fairly slow-moving collision that is, it's kind of protecting you from. Yeah, um, also, you might see something before it hit you in the eye. It's true. It's coming you know, straight towards your it's eye. It's coming right towards yeah, your yeah, face. Yeah, exactly. You might notice that it's yeah, coming towards yeah. your face. Uh, another theory, um, particularly applies to humans, that it's used for, like, communication. In some way, or for you know, because it's like to, to know what what fluttering, that fluttering, fluttering your eyelashes at people, that, that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, but look, no, there's been a new a new um, paper published recently, a new kind of idea put out by some mechanical engineers from Georgia Tech in the United States. Great, we have an idea. Yes, they are mechanical engineers, the right people. I think you can agree to be studying this this topic. But no, what they found is basically it does sort of come back to what you were talking about, Claire. Um, that they there to protect our eyes. Um, but not in the way that you might think. So, essentially, the main protection that we have for our eyes is uh, is tears. It is like a kind of this mixture of mucus and oil and water that kind of lubricates our eyes and washes away any stuff that lands on them, this sort of thing. When you put it like that, it sounds really gross. It does sound pretty gross. It yeah. is pretty, bro- pretty gross. Um, <laughs> but, and we blink, of course, to, um, to refresh the, mm. the, the covering and to clean away all the detritus and things. So it's a fairly good system. So the, the idea that they had these mechanical engineers is that the eyelashes are there to support this system. They do it by, um, well, by helping to stop stuff getting in, but also to stop the eyes drying out. So this is their, this is their um, theory. And one, this is supported by their observation that children who have allergies have 10% longer, tend to have 10% longer eyelashes than children who don't have allergies. Um, is this what the mechanical engineers found? Well, this is, they, they reported in their paper as a, as a previous study had found that. <laughs> Really? No, they didn't. They didn't go measuring children's eyelashes. No, but somebody in, did at some point. Someone in did. Time. said no. Instead of instead of um instead of um, measuring children's eyelashes, they measured the eyelashes of other animals, because mammals most mammals have eyelashes, and so they went around measuring um, eyelashes from various mammals. Jersey cows have pretty long eyelashes. Uh, yeah, a lot of them camels and giraffes, and so they did a whole range of different sizes from you know from yeah yeah your giraffes and camels and red kangaroos down to things like you know hedgehogs and. Elephant shrews and, and this sort of thing, um, and then they put them on the graph, the um, the size of the eyelashes. Right. And what they found was there was a relationship. They found that the the length of eyelashes was generally it's about one third the width of the open eye. Okay. Across the different species and different sizes of mammals. Now to is test that, is that top to bottom or side to side? Well, it's kind of sticking out. Wait, it's sticking outwards. What? The length sort of sticking out is like one third. This is what they they came out with. Yeah. All right. Anyway, no, the width of the eye, you mean, top, is yeah. top to bottom. Yeah, 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 the, yeah, yeah, the, the maximum top, bit. Yeah, top to bottom. Yeah, okay. this is what okay. they found. Anyway, so, so then they decided, because being mechanically used, they decided to test what this actually means because they had their idea. So they built an artificial mock-up eye, which basically was a dish of water that they then surrounded with artificial eyelashes. So they used actual artificial eyelashes, like your, your fake lashes. They also used like little kind of mesh screens which to, to do the same effect as eyelashes. Uh, and then they, they put them in the wind tunnel 
Mechanical engineers love to use wind tunnels. They, they made they? their own wind tunnel. They boasted about how they made it, their own cheap wind tunnel. Um, <laughs> and out of bits of tin they had lying around. And then they, um, so they tested the rate of evaporation. They also uh, did things like they sprayed little drops of, of dyed liquid to, that were kind of to simulate the effects of, say, pollen and dust kind of things landing on it. And what they found is that in the wind tunnel, that the eyelashes did provide a form of protection. So what they do seem to do is create a little kind of stagnation zone, they called it, a sort of bit of still air that's trapped in between the eyelashes. And that kind of is a protective thing to stop, you know, the wind blowing across to dry out the eyes. It also kind of stops because the wind's not blowing and it stops the stuff coming in as well. Um, so then that would probably, the longer the eyelashes, the, the better effect it's going to be. But they also found that the eyelashes get too long, then they kind of form a, uh, a funnel shape that then directs air into the eye. So you can't have the eyelashes oh. too long either. So all these mascara ads about adding length to your eyelashes, they're all wrong. They could be causing trouble. They could be causing trouble and, and, and little funnels of hot air just yeah, yeah. drying out your eyes. So they did more graphs. Take that, Maybelline. They did more analysis. They did more graphs to try and work out these two effects, this, um, this wind funnel effect and the, um, and the stagnation zone effect. And they found that the optimal length for eyelashes to be <laughs> was 0.35 plus or minus 0.15 of the width of the eye. So pretty much... Basically the same as evolution so, had come up with. So, so the optimum they discovered was the optimum that exists in the world. <laughs> it's just, no, it's, it's verifying how evolution works. That's that what it's all great. about. And that they, is fantastic. And they found the mechanism that it was to do the aerodynamics of the eyes. So they actually stimulated different speeds because they did a whole lot of analysis of like how fast all these animals move, how fast they walk. Because they're trying to think, well, you know, if you're going slower, then there's going to be less wind. And so the, you know, not much effect. They found that it was pretty much independent of the speed. That it was just effect of this stagnation zone around the and are around they, the lashes. Are they going to use this experimentally as sort of like a biomimicry thing? You know, they did talk about putting eyelashes on like photovoltaic cells and stuff like that, and yeah. and other stuff and sensors and things. So you could have like cameras with little lashes on them. That would be pretty cool. That I think we can agree. But uh, yeah, if it, they then like blinked, just like yeah, that would be like pretty putting weird. eyes on technology. But look, yeah. So there's there is possibly technology applications. You got to you got to speculate on that. But I think it's just interesting to find out how it works and to have another great mystery solved. So yeah, evolution has solved it obviously first, but yeah, now we understand of it. Um, I think their next puzzle should be uh, eyebrows because. <laughs> I think we need an explanation of, of why we have eyebrows. And I haven't been able to find one. I've been looking up. So, uh, yeah, if anyone knows why we have eyebrows, let us know. I don't want to sound like arrogant or anything, but is it just me or do we all kind of just know that person that thinks they're amazing? What, Mr. Know It All or yeah, Miss Know It Miss All? Know It All, but or like. Mrs. Or. Senor? No, no. <laughs> no gender pronouns. I don't know. There is the. the person man- Know It All. Person Know It All. <laughs> there yeah. is the mansplaining phenomenon, so I think it is. There is a kind of gender bias in who the, the Know It Alls really tend to be. Yeah. Isn't mansplaining. <laughs> dumbing it down so women understand? Or like. A woman saying something and then a man saying it straight after and everyone being like, oh, yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point, even though um, 
even though a woman has just made that point? Is that what man's is? It's something like that, I think. I think, I think it's... that might be part of it, but it's more just like, or I thought it was like when somebody just like really dumbs it down and is really patronizing and is going to tell you how it is and has to really like explain it step by step to you. I, I thought it was when like, uh, yeah, a man explains something to a woman who already knows the stuff. And, you know, often it's, you hear like an expert in a topic will have a man trying to tell her something about that she knows oh, all about. I think that's what Manisha just said. Did you just yeah, mansplain? Yeah, thanks, Chris. No, did I? <laughs> oh, anyway, anyway. Since so, all of you can't see, Chris is turning a very brilliant yeah, color I think we've, of pink I think right we've, now. I think we've established who the know-it-all is here. Anyway, so, so Manisha. Okay, but, okay, so with this like really – crazy just knowing it all kind of person but you know like they don't actually know anything they're so far off the mark it's kind of like Mm. you know when teenagers take up like a trade or a skill for the first time and they know how to soup up cars and they know how to do everything and they're just amazing but no no they really just want to tell them but you don't want to crush their spirits. Oh, but I kind of want to crush their spirits yeah yeah. just like just Okay, so these uh, self-proclaimed experts, they're constantly like reassuring you how good they are. They are actually experiencing this thing called the Dunning-Kruger effect. The Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah. Yeah. So the Dunning-Kruger effect, it was first experimentally described in a paper by Dunning and Kruger. Yeah. In 1999. And the main result or the main conclusion of the paper was that the more ignorant you are the much more confident you are in your ability in a skill. Okay. Right. Okay. <laughs> or as Darwin put it, ignorance is more f- ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge, and so that is the uh, Dunning Kruger effect. It's right. a yeah, it's a cognitive bias syndrome, and so relatively unskilled individuals mistakenly assess their ability to be much much higher than it really is. And because they're so ignorant of the skill, they actually can't recognize that they are incompetent in it. Does this sound? Yeah, it does. So is there experimental evidence for this? Is there like... So yeah, actually in 1999 in their paper, um, Dunning and Kruger conducted a survey of students following tests and exams. And they simply asked them how well they thought they did. And they found that those that were raving about it they were just like oh yeah i did amazingly definitely got an a definitely got an a they were probably the ones that did poorly on the exam and they All just, right. yeah and then the ones that were actually in the top percentiles they were a bit more critical of their of their um of their of how they went yeah of how they went and, and their performance on the exam because they knew they knew where they actually uh, didn't know the the information, so they knew the questions that they might have had they to. They knew what oh. they didn't know. So that's the thing. Yeah. So when you're ignorant, you don't know what you, what don't, you don't know. know. And when you do, when you know a bit more, you know what you don't know. Exactly. So you yeah. hit a, yeah. and you're like, oh shoot, I should have gone over that. I know that's something, but I don't know it in its in its entirety. Right. But when you're ignorant of the fact, you can kind of BS your way through it. Wow. Or you try to BS your way through it, or you don't realize that you're BSing your way through it. Hmm. The uh, the authors actually took it an, a step further, and then following these tests, they gave the um, incompetent group, that's their words, not mine, um, they gave them some tutoring, and then after their tutoring, they were able to better gauge their um, skill and their, oh, their okay. performance on the test. So the perception of ability well, it kind of ties into your perception of yourselves, and it's actually generated a lot by external cues. So if you think about these person know-it-alls that we all know 
they're probably also within the crowd that's always praised and confirmed <laughs> and told that they're so they're so precious and so great. So also, is it part of their personality? You think as well? No. So the uh, people that tend to exhibit this uh, higher level of confidence, even mm-hmm. though they they're a bit ignorant, they it's because. They get these external cues to tell them how great they are the entire way through. So even they, though they don't, even though they're not great. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's like parents that overpraise their kid for ah. doing every little thing. So they grow up thinking, oh yeah, like for the fact that I woke up in the morning, I am the best. So you're saying that if we really want to help these people, we should call them out on things that they on everything. Let's let's all let's all just do it right now. Wow, maybe <laughs> maybe maybe that's what we should do. This is for... just take the Manisha approach to things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cut them down, cut them down, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, is there a um, an inverse of the, the Dunning-Kruger? Like, is there like the – so the more you know the – Yeah, exactly. So because I'm a bit I'm a bit scared of this notion that the experts who actually do know stuff are just keeping quiet. You know, it's so not just that the idiots are talking, but the, the experts are just not giving their advice and they know all this stuff, but they, they're too, too shy uh, to say it. I don't know. I don't know if it's necessarily that – they wouldn't say the information they know. It's it's not even so much about what you know and how you communicate what you know. It's how you assess yourself. Right. So it's not about what you know. It's just like that all comes into it. But it's how you assess what you know. If you if you think you know a lot okay. and you're unskilled in something, you reckon you, you just you reckon you know it really really well. Okay, I guess yeah. So it's not really about talking about it. Then maybe it's also about though how people hear it as well because we tend to listen to people who are more confident and and put more store in people who are more confident in what they say. So if someone comes in and says, you know, I know what to do versus the person who goes, I'm not sure I know what to do. You can listen to the person who says, I know what to do. Yeah, and that is actually a little bit scary. That sounds a bit like politics to me. Mm. Yeah. Sounds a bit like Donald Trump. That's what we're all thinking, (laughs) let's be honest. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Someone needs to tell him that <laughs> what he has has a name. The, yeah, well, we've, we've found a solution for Donald Trump, at least. That's, that's a thing, but yeah. Oh, I hope so. So with the Nunning-Kruger thing, so if you're, because it's all reliant on these external cues, your perception actually changes with external cues. So basically, you don't... So once you become aware that you're incompetent, then you're no longer experiencing the Nunning-Kruger effect. So, yeah. So actually, if you've listened to this whole story and you kind of can't pick out that person in the group that's uh, exhibiting these sorts of behaviors. um, In our group? Or in any group. (laughs) On the radio right now? No, no, no. I mean in your personal groups, in uh, in our group here. It could be in any group. Uh, It's quite possible that you're the one that's uh, experiencing it if you can't point out somebody else. But... That there is, but okay, I say that with a sort of, sort of reassuring thing because everybody experiences it at one point or another because you're all a little bit, in, we, we, I include myself, thank you, mm. we're all a little bit incompetent and um, until we, until we learn a little bit more. So, mm. And we could all just ask other people a few more questions. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Do our yeah. research a little, dig a little deeper, be a bit, bit more critical.
That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost Lost in in science. science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.